Well, good day, everyone, and welcome to today's webinar, which will focus on the global oil and gas outlook and an era of energy transition. I'm Peggy Tuck, and I will be your moderator. This webinar is hosted by Industrial Info Resources. IIR is the leading provider of global market intelligence. We effectively uncover, confirm, validate, and track industrial plant assets and then related project spending activity on a global level. Today's webinar is actually sponsored by Hillco, the world leader in motion control and filtration systems. Since 1905, Hillco's filtration systems have been the industry standard. Hillco brings fluid contamination problems under control, cost effectively with a full range of engineered filters, cartridges, reclaimers, coolant recyclers, and fluid conditioning systems. You know, worldwide focus on decarbonization and net zero greenhouse emissions puts the hydrocarbon supply chain in the spotlight. However, energy transition is going to take time, and that means oil and gas will be playing a key role for some time to come. Over the next hour, IIR's industry experts will discuss the issues and trends impacting project spending for the global oil and gas and refined products industries. So let's uh, introduce our presenters today, starting with Shaheen Shohan, IIR's Vice President of Global Analytics. Shaheen has been with IIR for 11 years, and he is based in Industrial Info's Dubai office. He has a background in consulting, strategic marketing, and analytics. Also today, we have Gordon Gorey, IIR's Vice President of Research for Oil & Gas. Gordon joined IIR in 2011. He brings 40 years of experience in the oil and gas and power industries as an engineer, as well as a number of management positions, including business development, marketing, and managing companies. And also, we've got Shane Mullins, IIR's Vice President of Energy Products and Product Development. He has been with Industrial Info for 31 years currently specializing in the oil and gas industry, as well as supporting the power industry. Shane also specialized in developing IIR's energy equipment database, process unit database, and asset database. Now, all of our presenters are going to be taking your questions following the pre uh, presentation. So if you would like to submit a question, just look over to the side of the screen and you will see an area to submit that question. Please feel free to do so at any time during the webinar. So let's get started. And we're going to start off now with um, Gordon Gorey, IIR's Vice President of Research for Oil and Gas. Thank you, Peggy, for the intro. Um, just quickly showing this visual uh, as an opening to where our oil and gas data, our oil and gas database industries, namely terminals, pipelines, and production, uh, approximately fit into those well-known phases upstream, midstream, and downstream. I mean, obviously, for us, it's not an exact fit. As for example, you'll find pipelines in all three sectors, as well as storage of the various products. In the upstream section, we cover production drilling, as well as the plants, both onshore and offshore, where basic separation is carried out. In midstream, we cover gas processing, LNG liquefaction, and finally downstream, where we cover LNG regasification, and of course, petroleum refining, which for us is a standalone part of the industry. So that's just a quick intro as to where all of the industries fit in. Next one, Shane. 
Okay, now taking account of the previous slide, uh, what you're seeing here is a very high level of the global oil and gas projects uh, that we are tracking and where we have allocated the dollars across the various subsectors. And as you can see, gas related projects account for quite a bit of the majority of the total potential spend. I'm going to suggest that this is quite an interesting view of the overall market. And, and Shane, could I bring you in here? Uh, perhaps you could uh, bring a bit more color to the fundamentals around this 40,000 foot view. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of spend that's currently in active development, 1.86 trillion, but uh, just, just staying in context of the oil and gas outlook in the era of, an er of the energy transition, uh, while the war in Ukraine has brought the importance of energy security to the forefront, and it's difficult to sustain an energy transition in the middle of an energy crisis, government support and ESG pressure for, for you know, the energy transition itself is still gaining momentum. And the, the key differences now is that there's a realization that in order to double down on wind and solar and batteries and electric vehicles, you need to keep input costs down. Uh, the materials uh, uh, that go into making that, uh, you know, uh, renewable energy need to be uh, kept low uh, so, so that you can sustain an energy uh, transition build out. And you can't do that without investing more in oil and gas. Uh, keep in mind that the electrification of the transportation sector only accounts for about a half, half of the barrel. So the oil and gas industry is not going to become a sunset industry by 2050. Uh, but the sun is eventually going to set on production that's not seen as responsibly produced. Yes. Yeah. Uh, if I could add, Shane, also a little bit of, of context, certainly to the to the gas-related spending, which is going to form a, a fairly sizable component of what we discussed today. Obviously, the the, the contribution that gas natural gas makes to the overall energy mix is, is actually. I think strengthened even further. I mean, already it had a, a very prominent role in being obviously the, the, the bridge fuel for what will be a, a steady and a gradual transition uh, towards those renewables you talked about, Shane, uh, as well as actually supporting some of those new growth markets such as blue hydrogen. Uh, but really now, uh, it, it, it's the, the need for the uh, you know, near to midterm energy security has really brought natural gas very much under an even more intense investment spotlight. So the outlook for natural gas, which was already somewhat, has already sort of decoupled from crude, from the crude market outlook that we'll be discussing. And I think this will further widen due to the continued development of LNG export markets and obviously the build out in the buy side regasification markets as well. Uh, and that's obviously led to a very globalized gas trade flow, which is now really starting to uh, reshape some of these uh, gas markets. Now, uh, moving on, uh, the next visual that we're going to look at is um, how total oil and gas spending has trended over the last five years and how the current to forward four-year outlook is now shaping up. We are in the midst of what I would call a perfect storm, whereby the, the, the structural change to the global energy mix, which was gradually starting to play out as we kind of prepped ourselves for a more managed and slow transition of reduced hydrocarbon consumption uh, and that move towards renewable, uh, had already led to many oil and gas majors recalibrating um, 
a lot of their long-term investment plans and certainly their uh, reshaped some of their asset portfolios. But then we were hit by COVID, uh, what we could call a kind of a, a black swan event, something you really can't prepare for. Um, and what we can see here on the chart, that really led to many project owners slowing down their investment plans uh, in light of the major slump in demand. Uh, but it actually also put many of those still active project sites into physical lockdown. And these two factors had led to uh, what we can see as a major push out deferring of a lot of that spending that was planned for 2020 and 2021. Now, we've seen uh, at the start of this year a second unplannable event being the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And I think this has really added huge amounts of complexity to markets. Um, but the reality is, um, and I think we're going to hear this throughout the presentation, there is still long-term demand for hydrocarbons, even during the, the, the kind of the most intense COVID lockdown period, uh, where global crude consumption fell by you know, 8, 10 million barrels per day. We still consume 90 million barrels of crude. Um, but what we're seeing now, because of that sort of uh, retrenchment for, for 18 or 24 months in spending, what we've got now is demand is not being matched by the kind of the natural pace of investments that has now been disrupted by the events that we've seen over the last 24 months. And so, uh, as I said, a lot of complexity to deal with uh, and supply, whether that's going to be coming from expansions or indeed uh, to existing production or uh, from new plant plant uh, new plant develop plant developments it is now very much I think out of step with the spending levels needed to meet certainly the uh, the current near-term demand outlook so Shane with that kind of complexity the volatility maybe you could just touch on your thoughts around some of the kind of the, the, the pricing for both gas and gas and crude yeah, the rebound in natural gas demand that, that has occurred post-COVID, which has now been coupled with the largest geopolitical risk to energy security the gas market's really ever faced, that sent prices soaring and, and driving a, a sharp rebound in demand for coal uh, on lack of supply uh, to replace that. Uh, on the oil side, while fears of global economic uh, slowdowns are, are occurring, uh, and that's pulling prices down uh, recently, especially now that China looks like it's going back into uh, some further lockdowns. Uh, we, we still can't lose sight of the fact that there is very low spare capacity available uh, globally. And, and we're at the end of the, uh, the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve releases, which will need to be replenished. Uh, so the oil price uh, dropping there is not necessarily going to last as long as we think it will. Uh, on the gas side, LNG prices are extremely high and will be volatile for a while as no one really can predict if Russian pi pipeline supplies will be available this winter or how long the Ukraine war will last. Uh, but some relief is on the way from restarts planned at Freeport LNG, Shell's prelude FLNG later this year, and uh, we still see the startup of ENI's Coral South uh, FLNG underway, and, uh, and uh, that's going to be followed by BP's Tengu Train 3 earlier next year. So there, there will be some relief on its way as far as uh, supplies from LNG, which can bring the prices down to uh, 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 less than what we're seeing today, at least. Okay, Shane, thank you. If you could move to the next slide. Okay, so now looking at this slide, uh, what we're doing here is we're homing in a bit closer to uh, um, what I would call a more near-term view. In this case, we're narrowing down to what we call a 23-24 outlook. 
So looking at the box on, on the left, uh, you can see by the arrows where the, the changes uh, have taken place for those projects which we are tracking that are under construction. Uh, and this is versus a similar outlook that we did uh, earlier, that very early this year. Now we use this just as a barometer. Uh, and at that time, uh, earlier in the year, we had uh, just over 3,300 project counts and the value of about 390 billion. So as you can see, uh, we're up a bit on both count and value, um, and this is what we're seeing as, as an upward trend. Um, now, uh, looking to the right, uh, we have ranked uh, the overall spend uh, by each region based on the total active projects at the planning and engineering stage. And as you can see on this basis, uh, the top four regions uh, from a potential spend point of view are ranked as US and Canada, East Asia, Africa, and finally Russia. And one caveat here is uh, obviously the unknown impact of some projects in Russia that uh, we're still to see yet unfold. So uh, what I'm going to do is bring Shane in here to just add a brief uh, opinion on the slide. Yeah, uh, just when we look at the comparisons, uh, this slide update that we've done in, in years past, in 2020 at the height of COVID, we saw global oil and gas industry defer over about $200 billion in CapEx into future years. Uh, last year, uh, though, over $239 billion was approved, which was really the beginning of a recovery in oil and gas spending to meet the demands of the economic rebound as countries started to exit from the lockdowns and return to normal. Uh, a huge improvement in comparison to the $146 billion that moved forward in 2020. Uh, at the beginning of this year, we assumed the energy transition taking place in Europe would mean that we'd likely seen uh, you know, peak oil investment from European majors back in 2019. Uh, Russia, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has since changed that outlook pretty substantially since March, especially for spending in relation to LNG infrastructure. Uh, we're not going to cover every region of the world, but I just want to touch on China uh, while we have the slide up. Uh, China continues to lead the way on LNG regasification, pipeline imports from other regions, um, uh, shell production projects as, as, as part of their overall, all of the above energy uh, supply strategy, which is helping them sustain growth well into the future. And, and also to, to reduce emissions in China, they're electrifying the oil field and continuing to ramp up carbon capture and sequestration with the goal of reaching an emissions peak by 2030 from, uh, from the oil and gas industry. Uh, for, for Russia, some of the projects that are in construction, as well as potential LNG investment, uh, are facing so, uh, you know, major setbacks as part of the, the Russia exit by oil majors and technology providers, which has really shifted focus away from, from Russia to other regions, such as Africa, which outside North America and Qatar has the, 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 uh, a very large pre-FID liquefaction potential. Now, just moving on into LNG and uh, the potential there, the, that is there, uh, uh, LNG prices are quite high, and that will limit um, uh, some of the imports that we're seeing for, for China this year. Uh, that's temporary. There's a lot of additional LNG liquefaction capacity coming online over the next few years that are uh, bring uh, China back into the number one importer in the, in the 2024 timeframe. Uh, this is just a heat map based on the total investment value of the regasification terminals that are currently under development to import additional LNG. Uh, right now, there are 70 projects under construction that are, that are going to add about 151 million tons per annum of import capability when completed. 
Uh, over the last year, active CapEx development has increased over 6% uh, to $134 billion for new LNG import infrastructure. And out of that, 20% uh, of the spend is, is related to in-plant CapEx at existing terminals to add reloading capability for ship bunkering, truck loading, additional storage, and, and, and vaporizer capability as terminal operators develop projects to increase utilization, especially in Europe. With that infrastructure moving forward, long-term LNG demand fundamentals are still in place. We're still going to need over 100 metric tons per annum of additional approvals beyond what's been recently approved over the past few months uh, by 2025 to meet demand that's, that's projected out to 2030 and another 50 metric tons per annum by 2035. Uh, while for now LNG demand will be constrained by a lack of supply, there's 89 metric tons per annum of new capacity that's currently in construction or recently approved that's scheduled to come online by 2025. And uh, that can't get here soon enough. Uh, on the right-hand uh, side, prices are going to reduce additional spend on regasification globally next year, but we expect that to improve as we get closer to the 2025 uh, year as prices come down. Gordon, I'm going to hand this back to you on Europe. Thanks, Shane. Um, we're now going to go around uh, a few of the regions, and as Shane mentioned, we're not going to cover all of the regions, but uh, arguably we're going to start off with uh, Europe. And uh, of all regions, uh, Europe is, is leading the way, um, some would say, regarding the energy transition trend, whereby carbon capture, reducing methane emissions, and the use of green and blue hydrogen uh, seems to form a good deal of the current headline news. With that said, we're still seeing over 2,100 projects valued at about $150 billion that are slated to kick off in the 23-24 time period. And you can see the breakout by category in, in the pie chart to the right. Now, diving a bit deeper in the North Sea offshore sector and prior to COVID-19 arrival, capital investment was predicted at about $5.5 billion. But actually, uh, the figure ended up just about $3 billion due to number of deferral and cancellations. However, now the sector has entered into a period of uh, slow recovery, but investment capex at the moment still remains in the $3 to $4 billion until the end of the year, as investors need to rethink strategies, increase offshore personnel levels, and undertake safer approach to capital spending. However, significant opportunities are under consideration for approval, uh, which collectively could entail over $7 billion in new investment. Now, just on the point of around one-third of UK offshore well decommissioning plants <coughs> excuse me, were deferred uh, last year. Uh, but again, activity is slowly recovering, and we expect this to up, uh, take an uptick uh, coming into this year and next year. At the same time, some companies may look to advance <coughs> excuse me, existing plans presently deferred from previous years in order to benefit from the higher commodity prices. As for net zero emissions from offshore sector, operators are committed to work collaboratively towards the aims of a roadmap for 2035. They set their way through energy transition and support in the UK in achieving a net zero targets. Most prominent projects in decarbonisation of the offshore production sector will involve power from onshore solutions, as well as installation 
of renewable energy services dedicated for providing electricity to the production infrastructure. Shane, I think you were going to add something here, so pass it back to you. Yeah, I, I brought this slide back. Uh, I didn't think I was going to use it this time because it's a little dated now since this was produced back in March. There's been so many projects added to this, uh, at least a dozen more uh, since then, but it's still very relevant. I mean, since the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've witnessed a major ramp up of gas-related infrastructure projects in Europe to secure alternatives to Russian-supplied pipeline gas. And uh, again, this is just a partial list of of more than 10 billion projects that are now moving forward in Europe to uh, to, to help um, diversify away from Russian supplied pipeline gas and 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 what what that's led to is Europe's no longer the market of last resort for for LNG spot cargos and uh, Asia's no longer able to rely on a stable spot market so long-term contracts have really made a comeback and, and globally LNG developers are signing up 18 plus year deals again for for LNG contracts since more more since March than all of last year combined, uh, which is really improving the uh, the LNG FID forecast not only in uh, North America but but also in Africa and the Middle East. Uh, uh, since June, uh, Europe's been importing more LNG than pipeline gas uh, uh, from Russia, and most LNG terminals in Europe are at full, full utilization or can't take an additional LNG unless additional pipeline capacity is added. Uh, Europe's changed their policy proposed. Uh, for both LNG and nuclear as, as transition fuels to provide needed energy for basic utilities at a reasonable price while the transition plays out over the decades ahead, which is good news for, for natural gas. And and we still see about 10,000 kilometers of natural gas pipe now in active development to reach construction by 2025, either to facilitate more production offshore or to to bring in additional connect interconnectivity within Europe Europe's transmission system itself. Thank you, Shane. Now moving on to Oceania. Uh, in Australia, this and Oceania in detail, but the spend is heavily slated to gas-related projects, uh, where we're tracking some 32 billion of projects that uh, could kick off uh, during 23-24 time period. Now, a bit of caution here, and I would draw your attention to the the bar charts to the left, and you can see that a good number of these projects for 23 are 2023 are predicted at the moment to have a medium uh, chance of kicking off. That's those in, in the yellow. And we continue to follow these projects uh, as they sit in the category where the changes can be fairly quickly carried out. Uh, breaking down the pie chart, you can readily see the, that the production sector, LNG's liquefaction center, and the pipeline sectors of the industry amount to a good proportion of the spend. So Shane, I think you had something to add here. Yeah, Australia is still securing the the massive build out that investment that they've placed into LNG over the, over the past many years by by now investing in carbon capture and storage projects and but also backfilling supply to existing LNG liquefaction facilities. Uh, Santos approved their five billion dollar Barossa natural gas field development, and Shell's still moving towards a financial investment decision on the Crow offshore gas project next year. Uh, both Santos and Woodside are developing carbon capture projects for net zero LNG pr production later on. And uh, just recently, Santos approved the uh, the Dar Darwin pipeline duplication project for the Barossa project in the Timor Sea, and that that opens the door for approving the uh, the Bayou and 
carbon capture and storage project next year, in addition to already approving the, the Moomba carbon capture project earlier. Uh, Woodside uh, uh, did approve their Pluto Train 2 uh, LNG liquefaction expansion, and they expect to commence construction on that before the end of this year. And uh, onshore, Australia's coal bed methane production is going to continue to ramp up drilling activity over the next year, while FSRU-based LNG regasification infrastructures is going to start construction to mitigate supply shortages in the southeast of the country. On the pipeline side, there's about 1,600 miles of new lines planned to connect new LNG regasification terminals, subsea uh, infrastructure, mining development, as well as coal seam infill pipe, uh, pipe work. And uh, finally, in, in Papua New Guinea, LNG is still uh, Papua New Guinea LNG is still working with Exxon and Total Energies for new production field development to feed both new uh, and offshore LNG projects, uh, onshore and offshore projects. With and they're also looking at about 500 miles of uh, pipe to a uh, new pipeline development to support that. Okay, now we're we're going to go into Southeast Asia. Um, so uh, the region uh, has long been a producer of oil and gas uh, for a good number of years, but many of their current operational plants are now aging and maturing uh, at a time when energy demand is expected to increase across uh, the region uh, of a population that is expected to continually grow uh, and probably by 25% by 2040. It is a home to rapidly growing middle income as well as industrial growth, and that could triple uh, and is leading to projections that the region could account for about 14% of the world's future energy demand. So how is oil and gas sector responding to such a future outlook? As we look over the next 20 month, four months of spending, we are tracking uh, just over 60 billion of project activity with construction kickoff date uh, over the next two years. Again, a good proportion of the spend is geared towards projects associated with the natural gas. And uh, as we all know, the fuels producing crude oil are mature going back many decades ago. Therefore, much of the infrastructure is already in place and, is now, and we're now seeing quite a bit of project development to increase the life of these fields by means of enhanced oil recovery. Um, the pie chart uh, to the right again shows the breakout of, uh, by category that we are currently seeing and predicting to kick off during the 23-24 time period. Shane, could you add a bit more detail to the region? Uh, yeah, the, the Southeast Asia region is going to be another key region for LNG as uh, field production, as Gordon was mentioning, is, is still winding down and they're trying to prevent that. Uh, uh, electrification is really going to pick up across the region and that's that's reducing dependence. Uh, that the key there is reducing dependence on coal is going to be a huge challenge without LNG. Uh, the, the region now has about $12 billion in planned LNG regasification terminal additions across Thailand, Singapore, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And uh, it's a key reason why Petronas is pursuing the, the, the Tiga FLNG project in Malaysia and Pertamina is still uh, starting up the Tengu Train 3 in Indonesia by early next year. Uh, this, this could also be followed by the Impex Abadi LNG project in a few years. We're going right, to hand it back I'll, over to Sheen. Yeah, great. I'll, I'll cover Middle East. I, I, I think you know the, the current current themes that 
uh, you know, have been playing out, and, and I'm going to be specifically talking and referencing the GCC countries here, haven't really changed materially. Yet. And that is one is about really about monetizing hydrocarbon reserves and resources and, and really to de-risk the dependency on uh, crude exports by diversifying and, and getting the, I guess, the, the economic multiplier effect from a barrel of crude by expanding uh, into the downstream. And this really does uh, remain still a strategic imperative. Now, domestically, uh, the region is still very much in economic growth and expansion mode. A lot of domestic gas goes into feeding not only the power generation sector, which accounts for about a third of production, uh, but a large proportion goes into steel and aluminium. And then the remaining gas and also crude is obviously an essential feedstock for those downstream markets. So if you kind of layer into that the, the, the exponential population growth and increasing industrialization and development of these you know, new mega cities in places like Saudi really lays um, an outlook of continued domestic hydrocarbon demand. Now, looking at the role that the region plays on the global stage, investment uh, in traditional oil and gas markets will and is increasing. We're seeing expansions. We're seeing shoring up of existing crude and ga gas production at a time when many other IOCs are actually greening their asset base uh, and operations. Uh, and so leveraging the region's low cost of production to capture share of you know, global refining and petrochemicals is still very much an agenda item. We lost uh, 1.8 million barrels per day of global refining capacity during COVID. Uh, we'll, we'll fill that gap. Uh, the petrochemicals is a long-term growth market despite um, the energy transition. There is still little really in the way of feasible alternatives to, to displace plastics and rubbers at the industrial levels. That's, that will continue to be a focus and absorb some of that crude. Now, that's not to say that the region has no decarbonisation plans in place. There, there are net zero targets. Uh, Saudi's sponsoring the Middle East Green Initiative and has pledged $10 billion into green investments. Uh, and along with UAE and Iraq and, and Kuwait, they've signed up to the Global Methane Pledge with, with many other uh, many other uh, countries as well. Uh, and then we've got players like Aramco. Um, they're part of the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. Uh, and they've set out a mandate to you know, build and develop new pilot carbon capture uh, as well as hydrogen initiatives. Uh, and just touching on hydrogen, it really is just emerging. But... Um, I, I think the region really has an awful lot of potential to be a major player, uh, certainly in the blue hydrogen space by using and leveraging uh, domestic gas supply. But other options that we're seeing, we're seeing investment moving into, you know, and initiatives moving into sort of reducing gas consumption by replacing some of those old uh, inefficient gas turbines and, and replacing them with more efficient uh, combined, cycle, uh, combined cycle ones. It's uh, obviously we're integrating nuclear power generation and obviously renewables uh, is still certainly part of the picture. We've got Saudi who is looking for about 50% of power generation to be coming from renewables up by 2030. The UAE, the targets, I think 44% by 2050 and, and all other GCC countries have got similar targets. So I think just in summary, when we, when we kind of try and put our hands around what's happening in the Middle East, I think we will continue certainly to see hydrocarbon investments continue certainly for some time. Um, and it's really about ensuring 
maximum production, but that production is being balanced with demand projections and, and still having in the corner of one eye, one's eye the, 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 the strategy of monetizing those resources, which will then feed into uh, and act as the financial or funding path to certainly sort of fund the broader decarbonization goals, which are now being laid out and communicated. So next slide, thank you. Okay, thank you, Shaheen. I'm now turning our attention uh, to Africa and uh, of the total projects we are tracking uh, we're currently seeing approximately 290 uh, projects at a value of about 92 billion that are planned to kick off over the 2023-24 time period uh, of which just about over 60 percent of this is related to gas however as you can see from the the bar chart again and just looking at 23 2023 um a significant amount of these projects still sit in the medium to low category uh, again suggesting that they're not quite uh, set in stone and thus have a potential to possibly move out into 24 and some maybe even beyond uh, that being said uh, the ukraine situation and the need for europe to diversify its natural gas sourcing I'm going to suggest could see a step change in pace and sanctioning some of these uh, larger projects. Um, so Shane, maybe you could uh, add some colour to that. Uh, obviously, you've been following this closely on the LNG side. Yeah, I mean, as, as Gordon was mentioning, I mean, the LNG development is really picking up pace, and as Europe and and major oil companies have pulled out of Russia seek alternative supplies. Uh, and opportunities. Uh, over in Mauritania and, and Senegal, New Fortress Energy is developing a fast LNG project, and uh, BP is now looking at the Greater Tor 2 Phase 2 F LNG project, which would be ones to watch over the next year. Uh, ENI is now proposing a, a second F LNG project in Mozambique, which could be uh, actually bypass the security risks that have prevented Exxon from moving ahead with their Ravumba onshore project. Uh, but I wouldn't count uh, Exxon out on that project either uh, uh, now that uh, uh, we see the activity starting to pick up and, and uh, as far as especially as we see the security situation uh, start to improve in Mozambique and uh, uh, Total is now looking at restarting uh, construction of their $20 billion onshore project before the end of this year and uh, if you look at Nigeria LNG they're still moving ahead with the train seven and uh, the model next to their existing trains and uh, Egypt still developing the developing the uh, the Zor gas field with some additional subsea pipelines and field development spending uh, looking about another 800 million next year to continue to grow their LNG exports out of their restarted uh, uh, LNG liquefaction plants uh, and and Tanzania is still attempting to revive their 30 billion dollar LNG project which has been led by Equinor and Shell uh, but the timeline there is still a little bit uh, uh, murky as to when that can move forward. But it it looks like there's been some positive move, but movement on that uh, over the over the course of the last six months. Uh, just moving on to Latin America, um, uh, Mexico now has uh, at this point eight LNG liquefaction projects in development that, if all built, could make Mexico the the, the world's fourth largest LNG export hub. Uh, this is all taking advantage of existing pipeline connectivity with the U.S. Permian Basin, and which and the, their ability to to uh, uh, bypass the Panama Canal. 
so now there's about 50 million t uh, tons per annum of LNG project in development that could, uh, that if all built uh, would again make them the fourth largest uh, exporter. Uh, now, not all these projects are going to transpire. Um, there's still a lot of develop development activity that will have to take place there, but uh, pretty interesting to see that. Uh, uh, we do expect to see at least one more LNG liquefaction approval uh, in Mexico, uh, and that, that could either come from uh, 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 either a second phase of SEMPRA or a grassroots phase that SEMPRA is working on now, now there. Uh, uh, several other uh, projects there are, are looking pretty uh, promising as well over the next couple of years, though. In Brazil, uh, Petrobras has continued to develop the pre-salt area of Santos and the Campos Bays, and there's about $10 billion of waiting capital approval over the next couple of years, and we expect to see about an additional five FPSO contracts, supply contracts, over the next year. Uh, in Argentina, although stalled over the last year, CapEx is up. In, in the Vaca Morta, uh, driven by the gas for state plan, which consists of large tenders for the purchase of gas promoted by the state to reduce the quantity of fuel imports. So there's still gonna be a need to invest in about $3 billion for the construction of new pipelines, compressor stations, and processing to facilitate continued growth there. In uh, Guyana, uh, Exxon continues to ramp up development beyond the, the LISA FBSOs and uh, will likely approve the Yellowtoa FPSO next year, and uh, subsea pipeline and onshore gas processing projects are up next to uh, promote a $1.3 billion uh, gas-to-power project there. And uh, in terms of LNG, we still see uh, additional regasification projects moving ahead in Panama, Nicaragua, and uh, seven additional FSRUs over the next couple of years uh, across Brazil to promote the, uh, the industrial market. In uh, Trinidad and Tobago, uh, Tobago uh, most efforts are underway to mitigate production declines and another billion dollars in spend is expected over the next couple of years on drilling programs and new wellhead and production platforms that, that are planned there. And final region here in, in North America, uh, we've, we've just recently seen two LNG projects reach approval, uh, Chenier Energy Stage 3 and Venture Global's Plaquemin LNG projects, and we expect to see additional approvals within the, in the next year, uh, in addition to Canada's wood fiber project, which is gonna start construction next year. And while there's a $152 billion in development activity with a planned kickoff by 2024, as far as LNG is concerned, there's only 11 projects in the US, currently worth 78 billion, that have all the necessary permits in place to focus on securing the long-term binding agreements to attain financing. But with that said, Tellurian, Sempra, Energy Transfer, Next Decade, even Delphin, uh, uh, Delphin LNG's FLNG project in the Gulf of Mexico have all had great success in securing agreements uh, all, all along this year. Uh, so more FIDs seem to be around the corner. Uh, but just remember, financing a major LNG project in, in the ESG age is, is, is a bit tough. Uh, you have to get uh, more than two or three banks involved to uh, to work with uh, as banks re are really declining to invest um, or go all in in oil and gas infrastructure investment uh, like we, we saw before. Uh, we are seeing, uh, uh, we did see Chenier reach up into the Montney Basin before they approved their, their project recently, and uh, we expect to see more um, uh, additional gas get secured uh, if, if, if uh, you know, Tellurian securing additional production in the Haynesville before they uh, they actually uh, 
reaching FID in, in the foreseeable future. Uh, the LNG build-out taking place is driving the need for a really rapid expansion of gas production. And, the, and the, right now, that seems to be uh, promoting the Haynesville, and, which is going to require additional pipeline, gathering, treating, compression projects to move forward over the next couple of years in that region. Uh, all eyes are still on the Mountain Valley Pipeline project as to whether abundant, the abundant resources of the Appalachian can continue to play a supporting role for more LNG export capacity out, out to the Gulf Coast. Uh, and, and production in most plays are improving, uh, but especially in, per, in the Permian and the Montanay basins. Uh, associated gas is going to require uh, uh, several gas processing additions over the next year. Seen a lot of recent approvals for that, and more pipeline expansions are going to be required to, to add takeaway capacity out of the Permian in, in, the, in the near future. Uh, we are seeing the need for additional fractionation capacity, so we're seeing some restarts in construction that was placed on hold uh, previously during COVID, and uh, also a need to uh, increase the LNG export, uh, LPG uh, export infrastructure as well. And just recently, the uh, Inflation and Re Reduction Act that was passed has greatly increased the the 45Q credits, which are going to be a key enabler for the more than five billion carbon capture and development projects scheduled to kick off construction next year uh, in the near in the near term. And that will become uh, the, the, really the next pipeline build out for North America as carbon hubs form to reduce industrial emissions uh, out over the next 20 year period. Thank you, Shane. I, now I'm just going to close out and I thought it worthy uh, just to touch a bit on the US uh, offshore Gulf of Mexico scene. Uh, we are seeing, actually seeing some encouraging signs, both from a current and near future point of view. Uh, just completed is the first of two semi-submersible platform projects, namely uh, Murphy Oil's Kings Key. And well into its final construction and offshore installation is the large shell veto project. Also due for completing this year is the Mad Dog 2 project. Uh, following that, we have the Shell Whale Floating Production Unit, or FPU, <clears throat> that kicked off in June this year, and Beacon Shenandoah Semi-Submissible Platform uh, due to kick off uh, this month. Uh, we had a third project to add to this, uh, namely the Total North Platte Semi-Submissible Platform, and this was also due to kick off in the third quarter. However, uh, Total announced that it was allocating its funds uh, to different opportunities um, at that time Total held a 60% operating in, in interest on the project, with Equinor holding the remaining 40%. The encouraging news, however, is that Shell have stepped in and taken a 51% interest and will be the operator of the field. The project has since been renamed as the Sparta Development, with both Shell and Equinor now reviewing and updating the development plan. Following that, we have the Delphin Cameron FLNG project, uh, which is slated uh, to get funding towards the end of this year, along with the LLOG Exploration, Leon and Castile F floating production platform. And then finally, and to close out, we are tracking some 50 additional projects that are currently anticipated to kick off next year, with a high proportion of these allocated to subsea tieback projects and associated pipelines. So that concludes um, the presentation. I will pass it back now for questions.
Peggy, I think you're on mute. That's it. You hear me now? Yes. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sorry about that. One little button with technology. But anyway, great, um, great presentation. A lot of really, really good information there. And yes, we do have questions now coming in from our participants today. So let's start off with, and Brian would like to ask, and he's actually referring back to slide two. Um, he says, is the mix-up spend very different from historical? In other words, what was the sp uh, spend split between crude and gas back two to four years ago? I'm not Gordon, sure. I guess. Okay. You were commenting on that just recently when you, when you saw slide two just the other day. Can you bring up slide two, Shane? Sure. So I can get a picture. Yeah. T uh. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> well, not literally slide two. Second slide of the presentation. <laughs> no. No, it's. Yeah. Uh, here we go. There we, there we go. go. Active spending. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, I mean, I, I think um, you know that this this has been on the build-up uh, for for the last two years, and where uh, you know the gas side of it or the LM pre production uh, has been dominating. So I I don't really see much of a change um, from, for instance, when we did it a year ago. Um, you know, obviously. Uh, during COVID, uh, some of the numbers changed quite a bit, but uh, to be quite honest, um, I, I think the push for LNG has been on the cards for, for a number of years. And uh, Shane, I know that you've uh, been tracking closely the, uh, I suppose, what the gas processing and treatment, which is probably the one that has changed more because previous years that uh, number in the US particularly was pretty high as far as uh, you know processing and treatment yeah and and the, the the spend on oil to gas ratio has always been much higher on oil to gas and it still is um, the 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 amount that you see there the 479 billion in LNG production is is potential active capex not what will actually be forecasted to move forward. A lot of that, uh, if you were to move forward with all of that active uh, planning, that would more than double the current liquefaction capacity of, of the world. And uh, I, I don't see that actually happening either. So there's a, there's a lot of projects being developed. Not all of them will move forward. Whereas the majority of the, the project activity that we see in development for oil uh, uh, has a much higher chance of moving forward uh, than an LNG liquefaction uh, project, so it's a little misleading overall. Yeah, and the other thing to add is just for clarity is con concerned is obviously LNG or the gas side of it includes the processing side of it. The crude oil number of the 455 billion or so is purely on the production side. If you were add refining into that market, then obviously the downstream side, then obviously that that would change uh, the shape of that, uh, what we're showing there. 
Okay, we've got a question from Daryl. Now, this has got a couple of different components to it. So um, let's start with, um, please discuss how heavily carbon capture is being employed in both oil and gas sectors. And um, then he'd also, another part to this question is to discuss how heavily carbon capture is being employed in, oh, it says it again, and then define blue and green hydrogen again, as done earlier in the presentation. Well, I'll kick off on that. Um, the definition of blue and green hydrogen is, is obviously a blue hydrogen is hydrogen produced uh, from traditional uh, but with carbon capture involved. Green hydrogen is 100% pr produced from a, what we call green electricity, so wind, solar, etc. Um, so that would, I hope, give the definition. And, and the first part of the question was again, Peggy? Oh, um, the first oh, about capture. the carbon okay. capture employed in the oil and gas sectors. Okay, so uh, I'm going to start it off, but I think Shane has got a bit uh, of knowledge there. I, I think the carbon capture side of it is is going to be applied now. It was going to be applied a bit more because it came into fruition where Europe, this is pre-Ukraine situation, Europe was suggesting that they'll take LNG as long as it's as green as possible, <laughs> which meant that at the uh, liquefaction, they had to really consider um, how they would carbon, uh, capture the carbon during the, the process. Um, so I, I believe that that will come back again, but I, I think it's less of an issue right now. And Shane, you, you and I talked about this um, pre previously, and you know, can you add to that at all? Well, I, you know, carbon capture has been used for many, many years successfully yeah. for enhanced oil recovery. Uh, what's what's new is the ability to reach out to hard to electrify industrial facilities, capture the carbon there, pipeline and pipeline it back to the oil field, and uh, you're re overall now you're reducing uh, uh, CO2 emissions, and uh, you could actually theoretically have, you know, carbon neutral oil production uh, by doing that if you captured enough carbon uh, at some point. So that's that's pretty exciting for, for oil producers that are already in, in the enhanced oil recovery uh, field, uh, recovering carbon from their gas processing facilities and injecting it for enhanced oil recovery, reaching out to industrial facilities nearby uh, uh, could be a challenge based on uh, the type of facility it is. But now the carbon, the 45Q credits are now $85 a ton. Uh, we've gone from being economical and recovering CO2 from gas processing and ethanol to the ability to do that for steam methane reformers, refining, petrochem. Uh, uh, the, the field is really greatly expanded now as to um, uh, industrial facilities that you could capture uh, CO2 and then and then either sequester it permanently in the ground or use it for enhanced recovery. So the doors really opened up. Yeah, uh, uh, Peggy, uh, just to go, go back on what? Uh, what Gordon was saying about the, uh, the the blue versus green hydrogen. There's actually a whole rainbow 
of, uh, of hydrogens. Uh, you know, the, as we said, green is from the you know solar wind, geothermal, etc. Hydro, but actually there's pink hydrogen as well, which originates from electrolysis. But the process is the, the feedstock or the, the, the producer is uh, nuclear, right down to turquoise, grey, brown, and black. So each one has a variation of the. The, the higher up or the lower you get in terms of greenhouse gas emissions is the combination of, um, you know, whether it's nuclear or renewables, or it can still be made from traditional hydrocarbons, uh, such as coal or indeed natural gas. But if you bolt on some carbon capture, then it kind of goes to a blue or a nice color of turquoise. And, uh, and so that there is a big palette, a big color palette of different hydrogens. So just to be aware of. Yeah, that turquoise one okay. is pretty interesting. The molten metal pyrolysis that um, yes, produces H2 right. and, and, and a solid, actually a solid carbon. Yes, that's right. <clears throat> is is there one that's better than the other or the one that's going to be the standout? Well, I was just going to, uh, you, you, you've, you know, opened up this discussion, Peggy, because, um, you know, the, the, the ultimate for everyone, uh, if you're a tree hugger or whatever it is, is, is obviously green hydrogen. <laughs> but yes. but the the thing about green hydrogen is the amount of water i mean not just water i mean perfectly pure water that is required to during the electrolysis project i mean it's about nine times the amount of water to produce one kilogram of hydrogen so that, that big that big issue is you know water as we know is 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 a big issue in some areas you know we we don't have enough water uh, although right now we've got floods everywhere but the, the the thing about green hydrogen which is was the savior or the perfect solution is is very much uh, very expensive but you need a lot of water to produce green hydrogen um, so, I mean, Shane and I talked about this the other day, and uh, and we reckon that, uh, you know, blue hydrogen is probably be going to be the more dominant. In other words, from traditional methods of producing the hydrogen with carbon capture, now that carbon capture is, uh, let's say, a more viable, uh, less costly than when it first started. Okay. Um, Manish would like to know, what is the long-term forecast for natural gas in U.S., such as um, the impacts of the petrochemical projects and those investments? Uh, it, well, the long-term forecast for natural gas demand, uh, I, I think we're, we're, we're going to see natural gas demand in the power sector start to uh, wind down a little bit. Uh, it, you know, it's reached its peak. It's only going to be growing regionally, but uh, there is natural gas demand increasing, and uh, in, in the from from the industrial sector, uh, fertilizers are running full out right now, uh, increasing demand recently. But you do see things like the uh, uh, shells, um, uh, cracker in Pennsylvania is coming online. Uh, uh, you know, I, I guess pretty much right about now, and uh, that's that's going to be consuming. Just that one plant alone, I get what 84 million cubic feet a day. Uh, so there's there there are are quite a few startups of uh, petrochem coming online. They're going to add to industrial gas demand in the United States about another five BCF uh, over the course of the next decade. Uh, but uh, energy efficiency is also going to play a role there. Uh, if, if gas prices 
stay above uh, where they are now, at, uh, which is over $9, we're going to see a lot more efficiency upgrades across the uh, uh, the industrial complex, which is not hard to electrify. Uh, so that, that could uh, keep overall uh, the natural gas demand in, within the United States in, in the, uh, the 25 to 27 BCF a day. Uh, out to uh, uh, out ten years as well, so we'll just see how have to see how gas prices uh, uh, where they remain and 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 uh, whether or not the industrial facilities can justify the uh, the expensive projects to replace uh, natural gas fired boilers and furnaces with uh, electric options or uh, heat pumps. I think another way, Shane, of looking at this is is regardless, even though you've had a doubling of gas prices right in the U.S. Um, Comparatively, when you look across the world at the oil to gas ratio, U.S. still commands very high levels of cost advantage compared to other naphtha crackers, uh, you know, pet cap crackers across the world. So the cost advantage is there. I, I, I would assume, Shane, that even with a doubling of gas, of natural gas, we have you haven't seen any of the pet cap projects being shelved because of that increase, or or has that kind of happened? In any shape or form. No, I'm, no, I mean, the cost advantage is still there for petrochemical plants to continue uh, moving forward with construction and even even announcing more FIDs in the, in the, in the future, especially in the U.S. Uh, uh, I mean, we, we do believe that the, the, if, if you can get more pipeline infrastructure built out of that Appalachia region, we have no problems in seeing natural gas prices drop all the way back down to $4 per million BTU, and we can greatly increase LNG exports at the same time. It's just a matter of how serious are we about getting behind pipeline infrastructure out of that region, which has uh, been quite challenging at the state level. Um, Nicholas would like to know, do you think the um, that a heavy hurricane season is going to be problematic for the Gulf of Mexico offshore project, since we're talking, we brought up weather before? <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean it's always an issue. Uh, you know that uh, you know that's just built into the strategy of building these offshore platforms and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, yes, it could affect uh, you know some of the you know, but it would only be a short term. Um, I I think um, the players that are out there are in for the long term. Um, you know, and uh, are banking on uh, what is it—the statement that uh, U.S. offshore oil and gas production is, uh, you know, the lowest uh, emitter of the raw product uh, than anywhere else in the world. So uh, I, I don't think it's going to hold back any um, any of the uh, the projects that are obviously being built right now. Uh, and uh, the other ones in the near term, uh, I, I don't see that. They know it. They know it happens. So I don't. I don't see it being a big issue. And I think Peggy also, it is something that our researchers have, uh, are very much on top of. We actually have a tool called the Disaster Impact Tracker, uh, and what that really does is it it, it, it kind of monitors where these weather patterns are moving around the world, and then tries to identify. Uh, any physical assets or indeed active projects that are possibly in the trajectory or in the path of, of, of that particular uh, event or, or, or 
weather's, weather pattern. So that we're trying to kind of, you obviously can't predict where the weather's going to happen, but we are able to try and keep ahead of the, of the front, so to speak, and try and identify where there may be an impact both to physical operational assets, but also projects that may, be, uh, may need to be uh, vacated. It's it's really a big deal for us when that happens, especially with the trading community, because they want to know what platforms have been affected, when are they coming back, what industrial facilities have been impacted, and and when will they return, and and how much work will be involved in bringing them back. Um, you mentioned ESG a little bit earlier in the presentation. Um, what are some of those um, initiatives that are underway right now? Um, there's, there, there, there's quite a few of them. Uh, so there, um, I mean, Shane can talk to this after, but, but there are a number of uh, independent agencies out there that are uh, rating companies and, and their ESG profile. Um, now, a lot of it uh, on the environmental side is um, putting in monitoring equipment uh, in the field uh, to, to look for any leakage, etc. And uh, I think there's going to be a big tightening up there as far as um, a detection of leakage and uh, mitigating as much of the, uh, you know, the uh, raw gas that, that, that is leaking or the methane that is leaking out of, out of systems, etc. So I think that's one aspect. Um, you know, Shane, you, you, you and I talked about this uh, uh, a number of weeks ago. Have you anything to add there? There's a number of new technologies that are, are have come out just in the last year that uh, are are helping uh, oil and gas companies to sign up to third-party verification of that they are reducing methane emissions, and it's one of the big reasons why we see uh, you know natural gas, associated gas production, uh, uh, growing so much out of the Permian is because you're not bringing an oil well online anymore without having your gas pipe connection. Uh, flaring is, has been greatly reduced. Uh, EPA is flying over the region looking for uh, methane leaks. Uh, you know, there's more, you know, methane taxes coming on the line, uh, on their way from the EPA regulations. So the, the ESG movement uh, now is really related in, in the, the, uh, around the oil field and electrification of the oil field, replacing old valves, uh, pneumatic valves, uh, you know, replacing uh, old reciprocating equipment with uh, electric motors. Um, uh, so that's, there's a lot of momentum there in spend and the electrification of the oil field, of the drilling activity itself. Uh, even on the pipeline side, major pipelines are replacing old uh, compressors with uh, electric motors and more efficient gas turbines and uh, to, to reduce uh, overall emissions. And, and that's being verified by third party uh, so that uh, we can continue to sell LNG to our partners in, in Europe uh, that really uh, cannot uh, continue to import um, high emissions per barrel based product. All right. Does anyone else have anything else to add to that? I think we're good. Okay. That I think that that wraps it up. Gentlemen, thank you so much for a great presentation and thank you all so much for great questions. If for some reason we didn't get your question answered or answered properly, don't worry because there will be an expert from Industrial Info that will reach out to you and make sure that you get the answers to your questions. Um, once again, I want to say thank you to our sponsor, Hillco, the world leader in motion control and filtration systems. 
since 1905. And if you'd like more information on their products and services, just go to hilliardcorp.com. And also, if you would like some more information on Industrial Info's products and services, just reach out to your sales rep, especially if you want to get some more information on that disaster tracker. Um, want to say thank you to everything, everyone for joining us today. We'd like to invite you to take part in just a brief survey following the closing. And that pretty much wraps it up. Thanks for joining us. Hope you found the information very informative and have a wonderful day. Bye.